We are underusing our power and power doesn't have to be gross. It can be delicious. It can be power with other people. It can be power to create amazing outcomes. It can be the inner source of power and it gets us through hard times. It can be the inner source of power that allows us to be generous and loving and sharing with other people. What does power look like to you? What does it sound like or feel like? I learned early on that power, like power suits and politicians and executives, it felt like an asset worth more than any salary, and it sounded like abuse and betrayal. You know, in DC, I, I learned power and reputation were the commodities people traded on access, information, deals, more so than salaries, as government salaries are usually lower than corporate ones. And in my work in New York City and the advertising scene, I saw the power millions of dollars had to shift the power of what we called the, quote, opinion elites in Washington, D.C., who many of our campaigns targeted. And my psychotherapy and leadership work over the last two decades focused on helping people reclaim their personal power, especially when it was taken away through betrayal, abuse, and systems that abuse their power. Like many, I've spent the last several years reevaluating, deconstructing many of my beliefs and worldviews. And in this deep reflection, I realized my views on power for most of my life missed some important components and left my understanding of power incomplete. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. All right, y'all, we need to talk about power, like get into the nitty gritty details on what we believe about power, how we move around power, and how we see ourselves in relationship to power. Now I'm seeing how we need to get really clear on how we define it so we can truly understand the impact that our definitions of power have on our beliefs and actions. I see too many examples of people in power, I mean, just turn on the news these days, who still have a dated and toxic view of power while others still struggle to see themselves as powerful. I know I pursue power to help me feel safe and more in control and more connected and have more choices. And I also push back against power almost, almost for sport. I lasered in on how and who used power to do harm and <laughs> made that a focus of my energy. And to be honest, in many ways, it was a discharge of my own pain because I saw power as an adversary more than an asset. My relationship with power impacted my choices, right? As a kid, in my career. I mean, hello, careers in politics, advertising, psychotherapy. I mean, power. <laughs> and also in my relationships. And gosh, shoot. Most of my career has been focused on helping people heal from abuses of power. When I look back on that earlier part of my career, I pursued work that focused on power as a means to persuade and impact change on a larger scale. Working in power centers like D.C. and New York City drew me in as I sought to make a difference. But I did so from an incomplete and burdened understanding of power, a power I saw as bad and brutal and oppressive and something we needed to overcome. Power had a negative connotation to it because of how I experienced it used on me and how I witnessed so many people I admire fight for more power, often at great costs. Now, 
These deficits in my definition of power became clear to me in today's Unburdened Leader conversation. My guest today showed me how we, especially those who identify as women, have a harder time embracing power versus empowerment. Noting our incomplete definitions of power welcome the more palatable empowerment lens, but fear or reject what's at the root of empowerment, which of course, duh, right, is power. This reframe landed big time and brought to light, I still have some stealth views on power that are not fully integrated into my values and my actions. You know, further reflection brought me back to my foundational training as a psychotherapist. I pursued this career to help people change at a grassroots level, one person, one family, one organization at a time. And okay, also to continue to heal my own wounds and struggles due to power abuses, right? And in my training as a psychotherapist, I learned to identify the power structures inerrant in all sorts of relationships. And the reframe of power in today's conversation helped me connect the dots with my lens to change and more wholly embrace power as generative, not just in power over ways. Today's guest helped me see how our presence and choices can actually be healing on an even deeper level as we seek to push back on the harmful ways power has been used in our lives by using our presence as a part of generative change. Now, Kelly Deals is a thinker, a teacher, and a development coach for culture makers. Over the last 10 years, she's worked with New York Times bestselling authors and national and international feminist organizations and thousands of online entrepreneurs. Her research and frameworks are designed to help you get out of shame and into power so you can make the difference you're dreaming of in your business, in your life, and in our wider culture. Her approach is grounded in her training as a political and feminist theorist. She is the first in her family to graduate from university. She's also parenting five children who are Black, and that's given Kelly a ringside seat for the bias, discrimination, and harassment they live with on a daily basis. And the anger, anguish, and grief drives her to use whatever resources she has to change our culture and systems. Pay attention to when Kelly unpacks our relationship with power and empowerment. And don't miss Kelly's mantra, reclaiming the power that others have shamed in us. Listen to Kelly sharing when she was confronted by her friends for being too harsh and how she responded by saying she was appropriately outraged. This is one of my new favorite responses now. And notice Kelly's reframe on being told she's high maintenance and how that helps support her high standards that supports her values and boundaries. Okay, y'all, have your notebooks ready or your notes on your phone (laughs) queued up for this conversation to capture the deep wisdom shared by Kelly in this, yes, powerful conversation. And I have a noise disclaimer for you all. This conversation was recorded while we had real life going on. Kids, dogs, doors, you name it. The talented producers at Yellow House cleaned up a lot of it, but some of it is just going to be there. So thank you for hanging in there and sticking with this conversation. It is worth it. Now, please welcome Kelly Deals to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Kelly, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. 
I was mentioning to you before we started recording, I'm a devotee of the weekly email you send out called the Sunday Love Letter. And it really is. It's a very generous email. It's a teach-in, and you really model generosity. I learn about different people, what's going on in the world. (laughs) And also just I could tell your deep investment into um, the topics at hand, but also how well researched and you cite cite things. So just wanted to give a big plug to the Sunday love letter. But there is this quote um, in one of them from this summer where you said, when we're talking about leadership, we're talking about power. And the power I'm interested in is growing is invitational, shared, motivational, reproductive, sustainable. Power can be generative and beneficial for everyone involved rather than destructive to the ones it is used against. Everything that gets used against us can be a source of power. So this lens on power is not something many people are familiar with as power is often seen as something more destructive than generative. So please walk me through this lens on power and how it differs from conventional wisdom. Okay, so I want to start with the word empowerment. If you notice in most of our self-help or feminist, like pro-women spaces, we love talking about empowerment, right? I used to make a joke that saying like, empowerment is like catnip for, you know, a sensitive, thoughtful woman. (laughs) Like that's something that we are all deeply attracted to. And yet, we don't like the root of that word. Most of us have a really negative relationship with power. And when we say something like, I want power, everything in our body might recoil. But when we say like empowerment, it's like, ooh, we lean into that. What is that? And yet they're the same thing. Hmm. Like empowerment is to cultivate your power, your sovereignty, your ability to make decisions, your ability to create to influence outcomes, your ability to tap into a source internally that keeps you going in times of trouble, right? So the root of empowerment is power, and yet we are afraid of power. And I have a theory about that. And I think it is because most of us who have non-dominant identities, whether that means someone is racialized, whether that means someone is racialized as non-white, whether that means someone is a woman, trans, queer, disabled, you know, all the non-dominant ideas, identities. When we have that identity, we are intimate with power being used against us. Our lived experience predominantly is going to be people and systems and structures attempting to dominate us. And so we have, and, and sometimes that could like even flow straight into abuse, right? And so our first-hand lived experience and our main experience with power is with it being used against us to harm us, to squash us, to limit us, and to control us. And so that is the dominant experience in our culture. And I think it's like the cheapest, least skilled use of power. Hmm. It's actually really easy to bully someone. Hmm. It's really easy to set up structures that limit people's lives. And it's the least skilled use of power. But there's many different forms of power. Many of us know how to love and nurture and care for people. That's a form of power, right? And that's that's invitational. That's generational. Um, you know, that's that's uh, something that grows other humans instead of squashes them and limits them or harms them or inflicts violence upon them. 
And so what I am interested in, so I actually think our, our culture is actually pretty power illiterate. I think we only have one main understanding of power and it's the least skilled, cheapest form of power, it's domination. And what we need to do is expand our understandings of power and the way that we practice power to understand that there are many forms of power and that we, some of us, are really seriously, because we're afraid of power, because it's been used against us, because we're uncomfortable with it, because we associate it with being dominance and abuse, we are underusing our power. Hmm. And power doesn't have to be gross. It can be delicious. It can be power with other people. It can be power to create amazing outcomes. It can be the inner source of power and it gets us through hard times. It can be the inner source of power that allows us to be generous and loving and sharing with other people. So that's what I want us to do. I want us to steward our power effectively and cultivate the skilled forms of power. Caregiving is a skilled form of power. Collective action is a skilled form of power being internally resourced and able to weather hard things and settle our nervous systems and leverage our nervous systems to create amazing outcomes is a skilled use of power. I want us to be able to walk in a room, diagnose a power dynamic, and when it's being leveraged against us, be able to shift it. And one of my friends, Meghna Majmadar, she's an executive coach and a diversity and inclusion expert who works with some of the most significant leaders in the world, um, she talks about us being power fluent. And this sort of speaks to what I'm saying is I think that we are only associating power with negative, unskilled uses of it. And therefore, those of us who've had that experience are then underusing our power. We're hesitant to um, embrace power because we think it's negative. So I want us to understand there's many different kinds of power. I want us to understand how to use it And then I want us to use it to create whole new realities in our own lives and in the wider world. Power fluent. You know, it's... Make the match to Madar. She's an amazing person. Yeah. No, I'm really sitting with that. And it's interesting. I was even working on some copy for my new website and we were working on power. And I'm like, well, maybe we need to be careful with that word because that might scare some people. And now I'm going to like, nope, we're going there. We're going to go back and do that. But it's it's interesting, too. You wisely touch on the fact that power is scary to so many because it's been used against. And we think, oh, no, if I embrace power, that's who I am. And that's not who I want to be. So then it's creating a more a broader spectrum of power. How, how do we do that? How do we expand the definition of power and not cultivate yeah how do we really cultivate power with instead of power over i want to come back to something that you mentioned at the beginning of this call and you said you quoted me thank you that everything that can be used against you can also be a source of power that's something i tell people all the time everything and it's like it's one of my personal affirmations everything that's been used against me can be a source of power So how we start off is by using shame as a treasure map. Everything that you have been made to be ashamed of about yourself is a hidden source of power. That's why someone trying to shame you for it. Yeah. So for me, I'll give you a really concrete example. I live in a big body and I have been shamed across my life for being fat or overweight. And there are stigmas used against me. 
And so I could look at this as like, this is something that's limiting my life. Other people's bias or prejudice against my body has limited my life. But what I know to be true is because I live in this body and have all of these different experiences, I know things about our culture that someone in a thin body or a straight sized body doesn't know. I have access to information that most people don't have. And my livelihood is literally based on ideas and information and creativity. So anytime I have access to information or ideas that other people don't have access to, that is a power position. And so any place where creativity and fresh information and new ideas are valued, if I'm at that table, I am a big asset. So this is a source of my power. This is why my work resonates the way it does or why I can come up with all these new ideas and why I can think of things differently and connect dots that other people haven't yet because I have access to information that other people don't have. So I, I would encourage everyone listening to us to literally get forensic about this and write down all the things that you've been made to feel ashamed of and flip them. How are they sources of power? How are they assets? How can you use them to create new realities? I'm loving this because, you know, so many people that are healing from their traumas and their difficult life experiences feel like they need to exile that and that, but how they survived, how we all have survived, actually cultivated creativity some killer instincts and some abilities to read a room and to adapt and how to yes. really focus on that and actually fine tune that as a skill and not just a survival technique, but how it's, it's gone from just kind of, you know, something what we call a pathologic pathologizing called maladaptive, but really it's this adaptive way. And then to really go deeper in it, not out of fear, but out of, wow, now without even thinking intuitively, we can walk into a room and read it a certain way and scan things a certain way or problem solve a certain way without any effort because of you know years and years and years of having to adapt to survive. Now it can, how do we use that as something that actually is a skill that actually is power and powerful? I really like that. And the shame map well, I can, I sense a lot of people are like, are you, you want me to go walk through all of my shames, Rebecca? I could like, and I'm like, yes, please. But that map from kind of a forensic perspective, like you say, it really does, it operationalizes it and we can look at it, step out of it instead of be so in it so that we can actually lead those parts of ourselves and those skills that we've acquired. I love this. I love this. Yeah, it's like a toggle. You know how we toggle back and forth on screens between windows? Mm -hmm. Um, we can do that with information and, and the experiences that we're in. So we can have a, a direct personal experience and then we can just like take a beat and like toggle out or zoom out and just look at it from a different perspective. And so let's think about shame when we're feeling it, it's hot, it's sweaty, you know, we have a nervous reaction to it. And if we can just like pause and take a breath and remind ourselves, shame is a treasure map. And think like X marks the spot where someone tried to bury your power. They tried to shame you for it so you wouldn't use it. Wow. Yeah. So say, okay, let's go through these, these tough experiences and then realize what were people, oh, they're trying to squash my light. 
you know, what we have called too much, right? Being too much. What was too much, right? You know, well-spoken or objecting to harm being done. Um, Or too sensitive because you picked up on signals you weren't supposed to pick up on. Or joyful even, you know, know, whatever that may be. Oh, that. Even abuse, right? Like Mm. I was an abused child and someone was trying to make me keep a secret. And I felt ashamed for a long time of what was actually happening. Mm Mm-hmm. And that shame was actually a source of my power. If I had actually told other people what was happening, I would have had the power to end it. And that's why this person tried to shame me for using from like away from using my voice because he knew I had power. If I used my voice, this whole thing would end. So every place where we've been made to feel shame, there is a source of power there where we can create a different reality. Now, I'm not going to blame myself as an abused child for not using my voice. I'm just saying as an adult, that person put shame on me to prevent me from using my power. Hmm. Yeah, shame doesn't like light. It doesn't like power. Yeah. You know, and you touched on this. I mean, I don't know if this is the memory that you want to take me back to, but I'd love to have you take me back to a time when your relationship to power started to shift from what happened to you to what you can do and even have to do? What was that turning point? Yeah. One of, I mean, there's many turning points across my life, right? But one of the big significant ones when I was 11 years old, I went to the library and literally every day in the summer, right? I was sort of a latchkey kid (laughs) trying to fill my time. So I went to the library every single day in the summer and I discovered Ms. Magazine and I started reading Ms. Magazine and I literally read every, like every edition of Ms. Magazine in that library. I was obsessed And what I learned about when I read Ms. Magazine was that there was a thing called sexual abuse and that it was very common. It happened to a lot of girls and women around the world and not just girls and women, people of all genders, but it's very, very common. And when I read that, I realized like, oh, this isn't specific to me. This isn't any sort of defect in me that is attracting this treatment from a family member. This is like a structural thing. I didn't have that language of structural, but this is a a thing that happens because of patriarchy, because of the way the world is organized around inequity and injustice and oppressing people and turning them into resources that other people can use. And when that happened, the shame lessened. Mm -hmm. I realized it wasn't even about me. Right. And it was something that happened. And that meant that there was something that could be done about it. And it meant there was nothing wrong with me. It meant that there was something wrong with the world, that this was happening to little girls around the world. And that it's like that the the cloud lifting in that way, the shame lifting off my shoulders in that way was life altering. And I started pushing back on him. And so it's it's a significant thing when shame lessens or when you realize that when you can think structurally that things are not happening because you're a bad person. Things are not happening because you're inadequate. Circumstances around you are producing your experience. And that sometimes makes it seem like, well, then you can't do anything about it. But I actually think about it the other way. If circumstances around me are producing my experience, that it's not my fault. As soon as I'm realizing it's not my fault, now I can click into power. Now I can do something about it. But when I'm locked in the shame spiral, I can't do anything. So as soon as I realize that these are structural things that happen, my personal shame dissolves and my power activates. Mm. That's profound, especially for an 11-year-old. And I'm thinking once we separate, it's not, there's like this system, this is something that happens, it's not me. 
And yet, you and I have grown up and evolved over a time where you have, we are the, we're the problem. If we're hurting, if we're struggling, if, you know, we have doubts, if our shame is still, you know, running rampant, it's our problem. So it's kind of antithetical to what you said it, but there's been this whole movement, you know, change your thoughts, change your life, you know, Mm. and if not, then you have a mindset problem or you have set, you know, you're sabotaging yourself. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit, because even though what you said, I agree wholeheartedly, there's been relentless messages that if you struggle, it's your problem and your problem alone. Right, that mindset message of like, you need to change your thoughts, your mindset is the problem, you're attracting all these things to you. That's the language of individualism, right? That doesn't have a structural analysis. That's not taking into consideration our identities and how things are used against us. That's It's just completely thinking in a vacuum, Mm -hmm. you know, and I do think that, you know, we do have to shift our thoughts about things, but the way I want us to shift our thoughts is let's shift our worldview, Let's stop looking through that lens of everything is wrong with me. I'm the problem. I'm the cause of my own misery to, hey, I'm living in a world in which certain things are going to happen to me because of my my identity. And that's not my fault. And I can do something about it. So I think we have to shift our worldview and look at things accurately in the way they actually are. We have to learn how to see invisible structures. So in many of us who have non-dominant identities, there's like invisible hurdles placed in front of us. And we keep on running into them because we're taught not to see them. But as soon as you can think structurally, as soon as you change your worldview, all of those invisible structures, you can see them and you can navigate around them with savvy. You can stop smashing into them. It's kind of like Wonder World, Wonder Woman and the Invisible Jet. It could just look like there's a woman hurtling through space. But if you learn to look for the plane, you see it. So that's what I want us to do when I'm talking about becoming power fluent, which is my friend Magna's language. I want us to learn to start seeing those invisible jets and those invisible hurdles. Those are structures. And we can navigate around them. We can knock them down. We can smash them. And we can build different structures that actually help people heal and grow and share power. And I would say, I was everyone listening to this is like, yes, sign me up. And yet, I'm wondering for you, when you started becoming more power fluent, was there a bit of maybe backlash or grief or a detox in that process before just going, yes, I get it and moving forward? I mean, the detox is lifelong. <laughs> True story. <laughs> right? Like it's not it's not one and done. It's not like, oh well, something happened at eleven and now I'm like superwoman. That's totally not what happened, right? It's a constant unraveling. And the messages don't keep coming, don't stop coming at you just because you've woken up and you can see the invisible jet. Um, they keep coming at you. And yes, there's backlash, one hundred percent. I would say when I gave up trying to co-sign a lot of things, trying to be complicit or you know, fit into certain boxes, definitely there was backlash and like acute backlash, you know, people like trying to stage an intervention with me. I'm not even kidding. Like friends tried to stage an intervention with me and, and my, my marriage fell apart. You know, when I stopped performing the good girl, stopped 
prioritizing male comfort over, you know, my own realities, yes, everything blew up 100%. And freedom is worth it. Freedom is worth it. Just sitting with that, that there's a cost to there's a cost, there's a cost to living with power over. And there's a cost transitioning out of that and choosing to not to not live in that way and to be power fluent too. Um, and freedom is always worth it. But wow. And it doesn't mean that nobody else is going to come into your life. If people fade away because you're honest, because you're truthful, because you have boundaries, let them fade away. It doesn't mean no one else is coming. Are you comfortable talking about the intervention? I'm so curious about the intervention that your friends had on you as you were becoming more power fluent. <laughs> it is the most ludicrous thing you've ever heard. And, and there is actually kind of a happy story to it, but uh, okay. happy ending it, but it took a few years. But here's what happened. It was probably 2015, 2016. And you need to understand my circumstance. I am a white woman. I have five black children, you know, that I have birthed from my own body and I am a stepchild as well, you know, and I was seeing all these videos of, and I live in Canada and I'm seeing all these videos from the United States of black people being shot and pulled over and violated and all these tr just like horrific things. And when I watch them, first, I'm morally outraged. This is massively unjust. This should not be happening. This has been happening for years and years and years and generations, but you know, now we've got cameras. So now we're seeing it. This should not be happening. I'm not okay with this happening. I'm not co-signing this reality. And also I'm watching all of those videos thinking that's my child, that could be my child. And so I was having a profound visceral reaction to it. And so I'm posting about 2015, 2016, I'm posting about Black Lives Matter, I'm posting about justice, and I'm posting all these things on social media, and a lot, frequently, high volume. <laughs> and some of my high school friends were starting to be irritated by this. Some of them whom I was still very close to, some of them who I wasn't. But my one of my high school boyfriends posted this picture of a blonde Barbie who was pregnant with two little black Barbie doll children and wrote and wrote a post underneath it saying, like, is this just me or does this make you sick or something like that? Like, it was just, like, ridiculous. And I looked at that. I'm like, oh, wow, that's, like, exactly my family. And so I wrote, like, oh, hey, Jeff, and I'm going to say his name. Gee, that's not racist at all. <laughs> You know, and I, I said something on Facebook about it. He blocked me. A bunch of other people blocked me. There was a bunch of kerfuffle about it. And one of my closest friends in my entire life stayed friends with him, was still commenting positively on his and other people's accounts who were like part of that whole kerfuffle. And I went to her and I was upset. And I was like, how can you stay like acting like none of this is happening when he said that? And this is okay with you. Like, how, how is this okay with you? And she cried and she was so frustrated with me. She felt like I was attacking her. And I was like, but you're just leaving me out in the cold here. And, you know, you say that you're opposed to this, but you're just chit-chatting and shooting, shooting the breeze with him like it's no big deal. And this is not okay. You need to actually let people know that this is not okay. I'm not saying you have to abandon everybody. I think it's important to stay in people's lives so that you can influence them for the better. But you have to let them know it's not okay. And so I was upset with her. So then a bunch of my friends got together because I'd been so mean to this poor girl and um, literally called me up. I'm like, you're so angry. You're too angry. We love you. You're pushing us all away. You're way too political. You know, something's wrong with you. You need to stop all of this. 
And I was like, listen, I'm not going to stop any of it. You all can do whatever you want to do. I'm not going to unfriend you. I'm not going to, because I, I want to influence people, but I'm going to carry on doing what I'm doing. I'm not too angry. I'm appropriately outraged and we all should be. And I'm disappointed in all of you. So that's how things went. It was very bad. I felt like I had lost people who were dear to me. I felt like um, I was disappointed in people I love, like heartbroken. And, but I just carried on. I was like, I am not changing what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep doing what I'm going to do. And I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. So that was that. And then about two years later, I started seeing them posting things that I would have posted, you know, being critical of, you know, anti-Muslim bias, be critical of Trump, be critical of a whole bunch of things and like posting all this political stuff. And I was like, oh, look at that. There's an evolution here. And I believed it to be sincere. So just because at that moment in time, they felt like I was too much, they started getting messages from all around them, from other people in their lives. They started seeing the same things that I was posting everywhere about Black Lives Matter, about bias, about prejudice, about inclusion, about diversity. And it started influencing them. And their thinking shifted, their worldview shifted. And mm. so the happy ending to all this story is that just because someone pushes back on you in an argument at one moment in time doesn't mean that they are uninfluenceable. Mm. And nobody, I think, changes in the moment that there's an argument because that's when we've got our defenses up. But what happens is proliferation changes things. If the message is coming in from multiple sources over and over again, it shifts people. A changed context changes people. So that argument that I had with my high school friends didn't change them in that moment, but it planted a seed that was then watered and grown mm -hmm. by all the other different blog posts and articles and people who they were getting information from. So that's kind of what I want to note about that is like, that's the intervention, but there's also a piece of power there is one, it's not all up to you. So it's not all on your shoulders. Two, it's unlikely that arguments solve much like in the moment. Three, all we have to do is do our part and trust that other people are also doing their part because the proliferation is what changes the context, which changes the people. So your contribution, whether it's a blog post, whether it's a comment on Instagram, whether it's a conversation at the grocery store, it's part of the proliferation. And someone else is going to get that message 76 mm. other places in their lives. And eventually it takes root. And this goes back to what you were saying about power can be generative. I mean, it's I think of just seed planting and watering and you didn't cut them out. They didn't cut you out. You had a bridge still. And sometimes that's tricky, right? Especially tricky. on social media, but especially at the Thanksgiving table or at the holiday table, you know, with folks with a lot of different views. And you're talking about a time too, 2015, things were ramping up and shaking up in ways, at least especially for folks who uh, show up in the world like I do, right? Where it was getting rocked in a way that was impacting. And then 2017, when, you know, the women's march ha marches were happening all around the world um, right after the election, there was a different kind of awakening. And I appreciate that reminder um, to do our part. And it's easy to get overwhelmed um, and feel, feel powerless. Leading is hard. 
Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks, especially around power, that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is on a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. This takes me to a term that you use a lot in your writing and other conversations you have. You talk about being a culture maker. And so walk me through what it means to be a deliberate culture maker and why this is such an important lens for us to embody, particularly those who felt wounded by culture. Well, that's actually the point is culture is something out there that we are all born into, right? We are, mm. It's a real thing. We're born into it. And so sometimes we, just as we are afraid of power and we're, our experiences that it's been used against us negatively, sometimes we're in that same relationship with our culture where it's something that's happened to us. It's something that's not a great relationship. It's something that might have harmed us. And so we're like uncomfortable with it. We know we've been conditioned by it, but we're uh, unaware of how much we influence it. So let's think about this. If all of us on the planet died tomorrow, if we all disappeared tomorrow, culture would cease to exist. It is also something that we reproduce and we shape. So if all of us disappeared, culture would disappear, which means we are culture. So we are not just someone, something that the culture doesn't just happen to us. We are also the thing that reproduces culture, that makes culture. It flows through us. So think of culture flowing through your body. Now we can just let it flow through our bodies the way it is. And we are culture makers, right? It's regrowing through us. It's reproducing through us. Or we can be deliberate culture makers and say, that unjust culture that I object to is not going to flow through my body. It's not going to use my power. It's not going to use my tongue. It's not going to use my life. I am going to decide the kind of culture that I contribute back. And that's what it means to be to, to be a deliberate culture maker. When we just let it flow through us, the status quo just flows through us. We're culture making, but it's unconscious. But when we decide the contribution we want to make with our mouths, with our power, with our lives, then we're deliberate culture makers and including with our relationships. Oh, especially with our relationships. Especially. Where in your life are you being a deliberate culture maker right now? Where is that really showing up for you right now? It's showing up in a big way in my parenting. 
I think that's one of the the number one ways that I culture make. I am trying to raise free humans. Mm-hmm. That's huge. And I am trying to raise people who know how to navigate power fluently and who know how to love each other, who know how to take care of themselves, who know about self-care and community care. That's important to me. You know, the next generation is important to me. They're our future. Whitney Houston told us, right? So that's really important to me. And the other way that I show up as a culture maker is in the interior of my business. What are my work practices? How do I relate to my colleagues and to the people I hire? Am I acting justly within my business, not just treating people like human resources? So that's important to me in the interior business practices of Mm. my business. How am I culture making? And then in the world, what are my business practices? All of those things are important to me. And then the messages I put out in the world, I'm trying to put out new ideas. I'm trying to tell us that everything that's been used against us has been a source of power and encourage us to grow these equitable, just life-giving ways of being in power. So that's one of my ways of culture making is putting out those ideas in our wider culture, sharing images that promote equity, justice, and a future in which we all flourish. You know, you you talk about the back end in your business. And I know for me, I've had to do just, to, and I continue to do a lot of unlearning and learning around being a deliberate culture maker in business. What have been, has, has there have been the bigger challenges in how you lead and run your business? I guess one of the biggest challenges is I didn't want to lead. Right. I, mm-hmm. right. I didn't want to lead. I just wanted to do my work and, and I wanted magically things to happen. But what has to happen is if I'm the leader of a company, my job is to cultivate everyone else and create the conditions in which they can flourish. So that means I have to step into my power and think, how can I author conditions here? What are the policies and practices? What are the conversations? What do our relationships need to look like? What do our contracts need to look like? What's the process by which we contract? How can I create conditions that help people thrive? So those are things that I think about. Those are policies that I make. And this is the thing I want us to know. Institutions aren't these big things out there. We are all, anyone who is owning a business, even if it's a teeny tiny business and it's just you, you're building an institution of the future. So the decisions you make in your business are literally policies. So all of those things matter. And we get, and those are the only things we have control over. Like I can't tell my local health board what to do, except for every couple of years when I you know, vote for elected officials, right? I don't have control over that. I can push back. I can protest. I can do all those things. But I literally don't have the decision-making authority to implement the kinds of policies I want to see. I do have that decision-making authority in my own business. So mm-hmm. I want us to understand the decisions we make in our business, those are policies. And that means we have power to shape new realities. Decision-making, a place of decision-making is a place of power and not to delegate that or dismiss it or minimize it. Um, and always and be even thinking leaning back that. though. Sometimes leaning back and allowing other people to flex their power is a power move as well. Tell me more. Well, what I want in my business is for people to make decisions and follow through. And I don't want to be involved in every decision. 
And so I love it when people are like, Kelly, I made an executive decision. I did this. I'm like, hallelujah, that's amazing. Right. So me leaning back and creating space for people to exercise their skill is a way that I'm facilitating all of our power. Mm. It's the same with parenting, right? When we lean back a little bit and let a kid make a decision or run an experiment or figure something out that we're helping them build power. And that's another form of our power because we facilitated something amazing happening. It doesn't have to be like we're bossing everyone around. We need to facilitate new realities. That's how we exercise collective power. We help each other facilitate new realities. That makes so much sense too, because I'm thinking power, power that's generative fosters trust. And it fosters new skills. And new skills, right? But if power that's destructive is micromanaging, there's no trust, right? It's power over. So I think that's a really good way to operationalize and kind of distinguish power on a whole nother level. Because without trust, there's not a relationship. Well, there is a relationship, but it's there's no connection right. there. Wait, so let's be like, let's actually make sure like to really underline this. Power that produces trust is generational, is facilitative. You know, like it's, that's a new form of power. That's a skilled use of power. The other thing I would look at is power producing new skills in more people. Mm. That's life giving, right? That has a multiplying effect, an amplification. There we and go. negative dominant power takes skills and trust away from other people and relocates it in the body of the person using the or or the domain of the person exercising that unjust power. Um, thank you for unpacking deliberate culture maker. Um, I had never saw, thought of it that way about cultures always going through me, status quo is going through me. But as a deliberate culture maker, I can do a hard stop and figure out what do I want to flow through me? What am I going to be colluding and complicit with? And what am I what do I just want to disrupt, set boundaries around, hold accountable, say no to all of those things. So thank you uh, for that. That is going to stay with me for a long time. Okay, so I'm going back to your Sunday love letter again. You you wrote the following, your high standards are the seeds of your future business gains and your social impact. I had to I had to cut a pause for a moment when I read that one. Walk me through what you mean by this and how do you differentiate your high standards from perfectionism? Okay, so let's think about dating for a minute. So <laughs> back in the day when I had dates and went dating, um, I remember seeing online that people would say things like, you know, no drama. And whenever I'm heterosexual, so whenever a man would write on his profile, like no drama, what I knew that meant was, I'm going to treat you egregiously and I don't want you to say anything about it. I'm the source of drama, but I'm going to project it onto you. And I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. So what I also knew in dating was when someone told me that I was high maintenance, it meant that they wanted me to have lower standards so that they could treat me badly. So I started interpreting high maintenance as a good thing. High maintenance means I have standards and boundaries and expectations about relationship integrity. So I want us, and, and this is the other thing, I think a lot of time people with non-dominant identities have been told that they're too much, they're high maintenance, their standards are too high, and we need to lessen our standards. And I actually don't think that's true. I think we need to keep our standards high and stop moving off of them. Mm -hmm. So if you have a high expectation, that's actually a good thing. 
And if we have a high expectation for justice in our culture, even if it's not being met, we can still push towards that thing. If I have a high expectation about how high I'm going to climb on a mountain, even if I don't get where I want to go, I'm going to go a lot further than if I had a low expectation. So if we have high expectations about justice and equity, even if our culture isn't meeting them, we can push the standards so that they are increased. And we can do that in our own lives and in our own businesses. So we can have boundaries, we can have high expectations, and we can start teaching the world how to treat us. We can start teaching the world how to treat us through our high standards. And now I'm seeing that the connection with how you described high standards as generative power too, that paying it forward to our future business. I'm connecting all of the dots here and our social impact. Um, Because perfectionism is very then external focused. It's very rigid. It's very caring about other people think. It's acquiescing. It's appeasing, right? Right. I'm not talking about perfectionism at all. I'm trying to detox from perfectionism in a big way. What I am talking about is not lowering your standards for what should be happening in the world. I'm not talking about being a perfectionist and overworking a blog post or over- overworking a work assignment or, you know, hustling yourself into the ground. I'm talking about your standards for justice and what you know to be fair and right in your relationships and in the world. Don't lower those standards. Require other people to rise to them. And then hold yourself to them as well. So if you're like, this is how I want things to be, then make them be like that in your world. Now, we can't, like, I'm not trying to pretend that material circumstances don't exist, right? Like, I understand intimately that as a woman entrepreneur, I am grossly undercapitalized. Only like 11 to 16% of the business loans in this world go to women, you know, less than 2% of venture capital goes to women. The numbers are even worse when you actually start like looking into that data. It's like 0.063% of all venture capital goes to black women entrepreneurs. Like the numbers are shocking. So I am like intimately aware of all the ways that people with non-dominant identities are deprived of resources on purpose. Like 2% could not happen organically. That is systemically determined. It's not like statistically that can't happen on its own. Mm -hmm. So there are actual circumstances that we're navigating. I'm not trying to say that those things don't happen, but the things that are within your domain of control do not reduce your standards. Oh, within the thing, within the space that's within my domain of control, do not reduce my standards. That's a powerful container right there. What are gonna what are my standards with what I have and what I can do right now? I'll give you an example in my business, payment plans. I have been writing about this since 2016 and it's just starting to take. I'm seeing other people writing about this and lobbying about this. But I said that in the coaching world and the online self-help world, I see people charging 25, 35, 66 percent interest for accessing a payment plan to take a course. That is like, in some places, that's just straight up illegally, illegal, right? But it's so disgusting because what you're doing is penalizing the people who are the least able to pay for a service and then turning that into a profit center in your business. In no way, shape or form does it ever take cost 25% to extend credit to people, right? And so what I want us to do, if we're going to charge anything for people accessing payment plans, which I actually have a problem with, 
But if we're going to charge anything, it has to be tied to the actual numbers. So if you run your numbers and you find that it takes you set, it costs you 7% to manage payment plans, to follow up on collections and account for any defaults. If you realize that that's what it is, then add 7% to that payment plan. Like recoup the cost for sure. You're not a charity, but don't go charging 25% and make an extra 18% on a profit from the people least able to pay. That is textbook standard definitional economic injustice. And if I have a standard that I'm trying to create a world in which we all flourish, I'm not going to reduce my standard and change my business practice to produce profit on the backs of the people least able to pay. So keep your standards high. If you have a personal principle, build that into your business practices. What I would actually like to be particular about this one, what I would actually like to see us do is find that 7% cost, find that real number and spread it out across all of our prices. So when I go into a convenience store, I dislike it intensely when they charge me $1.25 or $2.25 to use my credit card or debit card. I'm like, take that number and bake it into all your prices. So that's what I would like us to do with payment plans. Consider it the cost of doing business and bake it into all your prices rather than locating it on the backs of the people least able to pay. Mm, I love it. I love it. This We could keep, keep going on on this. This is wonderful. I am curious on how you view success. Like what does success look like for you today? And how is it different from what you were taught? I think success is a personal metric. How are you flourishing? So I'm trying to unhook from the narratives around success that you need to make X amount of dollars and have this handbag and own these things. I'm trying to unhook from that. What I'm trying to hook into is what do I need to flourish and take care of the people around me? I have a million children. I have very high expenses. I take care of elders. So I actually need to earn a lot of money. And other people on the left might say, you know, that's gross, that's capitalist. But I'm like, no, that's not capitalist. We are all in the vision I have for us going to have a higher standard of living. I don't think that we should be going off and buying private islands, right? Or doing enormously destructive things in in the climate. Like we shouldn't be doing those things. But I want us all to have what we need to thrive. Everyone needs to be fed. Everyone needs to have access to good education. We need to have reserves so that if someone is sick, they can take time off. All of that is important. So my personal definition of success isn't I'm going to earn X million dollars. My personal definition is, do I have the resources I need to flourish and be safe and take care of the people around me? Do I have enough to be generous with my time and my spirit and my knowledge with other people. Because if I'm working three jobs because I don't have enough money, I don't have time to be generous. I don't have time to mentor. I don't have time to contribute to my community. So flourishing for me is, do we have time to contribute to our communities? Do we have time to be in loving relationships with other people? And are we safe and secure, especially in an environment where there are not a lot of social supports available? I love that so much. You mentioned that you're trying to unhook from kind of the the old school, what we were taught about success in terms of dollar signs or things we acquire. Is there anything in particular that's helping you on a very practical level from unhooking that? Because I, I know a lot of people have a hard time. They toggle, like they hear what you said, they're like, yes. And then they feel pulled back, right? <laughs> Into 
uh, a lot of dominant cultures views of success. So what's helping you stay unhooked from that and continue to move in the direction you want? And it's other people, honestly. It's that I've surrounded myself with other people who have that same dream and are trying to live in it, into it. I have a coach who has an anti-capitalist mentality who is always helping me. And my goal when I went to, to them, their name is Jane Charlesworth. They're amazing. I highly recommend. But when I went to them, I was like, this isn't about me being more successful in business. I know I can do that. This is about me having a beautiful life. I want to stop working so hard. I want to enjoy my kids more. I want to go hiking and I don't want to be absolutely like riveted with guilt when I'm doing those things. I want to have a, you know, what Mary Oliver calls that one wild and precious life. I want to have that one wild and precious life. And I don't want my tombstone to say, you know, she kept a clean house and worked really hard. I want it to say she was loved and she contributed to this world and she wrote books. Those are the things I wanted to say. So how do I create that life? So having a coach that's like constantly reinforcing and questioning those things so that they stay front of mind. And so I start living into new ways of being and start unraveling my old habits. I'm in um, a group with Danielle Cohen, who is, it's a business group, but it's from that mentality. If we're going to flourish, our bodies need to be okay. Our spirits need to be okay. You know, we need to be able to be generous and have time. I, I'm surrounded by people who are trying to do that. And I'm learning from them and they're learning from me and we keep it front of mind. So having friends and community members and loved ones who have the same goals, we don't have the answers, but we're all experimenting our way there. We have to have other people around us. There's no such thing of getting getting there by ourselves. Yeah, and, and that mindset's making us sick and making for our real. country and our world sick too, for sure. Thank you for for unpacking a little bit more. I'm curious too, with the work that you're doing today, is this what you thought you'd be doing with your life? I thought I was going to be a writer. And I think that I am. I just haven't published a book yet. But I always thought that that that's what I was going to do was sit down and write books. That's That, that explains your in-depth and beautiful weekly emails that everyone needs to subscribe to that's listening to this. So Thank you for this conversation. I feel like we only like tip the iceberg of it, but I really, really appreciate your time. And I'm wondering if I can wrap up with just some fun, quick fire questions as we yes. end our conversation. Okay. Kelly, what are you reading right now? Architectural Digest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obsessed with design and beautiful things. <laughs> That's a fun one for sure. What song are you playing on repeat? Oh. I have the worst taste in music. I am obsessed with the song. It's called High Hopes, Panic of the Disco. It's old. I know everyone's laughing at me right now, but I literally think the lines in that song are my life. I have high hopes for a living. That's my job. I love it. I'm going to add that to my Spotify list. What is the best TV show or movie that you've seen recently? I really loved Succession. Really, really loved it. It's like, everything that I think about. And okay, here's a power thing. If you watch the people in power, when people are talking to them, Logan Roy, for example, all he says is, mm-hmm, okay, mm, okay. He doesn't ever say anything. And I was like, that's the power move is he's just receiving information, but not giving out any information. That's a dominance power move of like trying to hoard all the information. So he receives information, people talk, they give away too much, they show all their cards, and they don't know what he's doing because he just says, mm-hmm, 
Mm-hmm. So hoarding information is hoarding power. Oh my gosh, that that's enough to make me revisit Succession. Thank you for that. Um, favorite 80s movie or piece of 80s pop culture? I don't know if it's the 80s or the, it must have been the 80s. Dirty Dancing. Absolutely. Totally. Late 80s. Never give it yes. up. <laughs> Nobody yes. puts baby in a corner. <laughs> I was just going to say. <laughs> I carried the pumpkin. No, I carried the watermelon. <laughs> carried the watermelon. Yeah. Love Dirty Dancing. Always, always, always. And hey, what a powerful political message. You know, it's about abortion. Yes. It's surprisingly so. The movie itself, the acting and all that, but it's man, there's an underlying message there. And it's a young uh, woman's coming of age, embracing her sexuality, refusing to be shamed for it. It's it's powerful. You're right. Redeeming dirty dancing. What is your mantra right now? I have so many. But really, everything that's been used against you can be a source of power. Whenever I'm nervous, whenever I'm spinning out, I come back to that try to use it as the treasure map. Okay, where's the power here? Let's locate it. Let's use it. That is a powerful self-leadership mantra. I love it. Kelly, thank you so much for coming today. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you and learn more from you? Kellydeals.com. It's spelled D-I-E-L-S.com. It's kellydeals.com slash subscribe if you want to join my Sunday Love Letter. And I really do pour my heart into it every single week. And um, on Instagram, I'm at kelly.deals. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kelly. I really appreciate your time and sharing of your heart and your hard-earned wisdom today. Really grateful. It's a delight. Thanks to everyone for listening and being here with us. I feel Kelly's directive to grow power that is shared, sustainable, and generative in my bones. It feels like truth, and it releases the burden lens on power that holds back and hurts so many of us. Kelly noted there is a lot invested in us having an adversary relationship with power and keeping us from a more generative view on it that could be used as a force of good. What have you been made to feel ashamed of around power, like your body, your story? And how can you flip these messages and make them new realities for you and others? This is such a great question that Kelly asked in our conversation. And if you led with a more generative view of power, what would shift in how you lead? And how can you use a generative view of power to help you and those you support thrive? When we commit to growing a definition of power that feels change, brings people together and increases capacity, we embrace a life definition of power, one that heals as opposed to one that harms. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If this episode was meaningful to you, I'd be honored if you left a review, rated it, and shared it with someone who you think would benefit from it. And you can find this episode, show notes, free Unburdened Leader resources, and a way to sign up for the Unburdened Leader weekly email, along with all the ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 